Peter had addressed this letter to those who are elect exiles dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. And as this people, scattered as they were because of the opposition they experienced, that He encouraged, even exhorted, and to live godly lives to the glory of God here in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Jesus Christ, have you ever had to start fresh? Perhaps your family made a big move to a new town, even to a new country. Or you've had a new job in a different field. Or you've just taken a big step in a new direction where everything's different. And the new faces and the new neighborhoods, the new environments, it's all strange to you. You don't really know anyone yet. How much do you want to blend in? How much do you want to put up walls around your life so that this new area doesn't impact you? Even as Christians, we might ask ourselves this. Think, for example, how isolated the Mennonites can be from society. How they live in their own communities with their own schools and stores and trades that completely shut out society and its technologies. Or consider how integrated, how casual many open-minded churches are in their quest for spreading the word. Desiring to make no enemy, to be culturally relevant even going so far as to toss out crucial elements of God's justice in order, giving acceptance to things like practicing homosexuality or embracing blasphemous art in the theater or cinema. Both extremes have pros and cons, but the question remains, how much, how little do we integrate with secular society? The Apostle Peter writes to Christians dispersed throughout Asia Minor with this concept in mind. Just prior to our text, he had spoken so wonderfully about being God's royal priesthood, his holy nation. And now he builds upon this by urging the believers to live among the Gentile nations as foreigners, as pilgrims, being in the world but not of it. Peter calls the Christians to lead godly lives for God's glory as examples for themselves and for their neighbors, for the Gentiles. So this morning, let's look at how Peter describes the people of God here in chapter 2 with the following theme and points. Peter exhorts Christians to live godly lives to the glory of God. 
Well, consider three things. First, the method for living a godly life. Second, the result of living a godly life. Third, the purpose of living a godly life. Peter exhorts Christians to live godly lives to the glory of God. We'll consider first the method for living a godly life. Now, although Peter had already addressed the readers at the beginning of the letter, he takes time again to address them here. And he does so. Beloved, and they and we with them are the children of God whom he loves beyond all measure. And we only have a small beginning, a small understanding of the vastness of the love that God has for us. And it can be so easily lost when we dwell on things that go wrong in our lives. Complications with school, setbacks at work, physical, mental limitations caused by sickness or disease, difficulty raising children or in having children, strained or ruined relationships, things that cause us to wonder whether God is truly present in his love, but be loved. And that is what you are, beloved of Christ, Christ Jesus, who was humiliated on the cross, even dying for you, a brutal sacrifice done purely in his love and grace that he has for you. Beloved, there's so much weight in this word. Do not allow it to pass over you unnoticed each time the gospel message begins with it. Beloved, a constant reminder of his steadfast, everlasting, unfailing love. And Peter does not just weigh his exhortation with that beautiful word. But in his exhortation, he uses a very emphatic word to encourage them, to exhort them onwards. I urge you. This is a word used very frequently in the Gospels as people seek Jesus' aid. Later again by the apostles as they encourage people in comfort or even admonish them on account of God's acts of salvation. I urge you. It's a public outcry, a preacher's exhortation to his listeners to heed the word of the one who loves them, to act Accordingly, Peter is emphatically urging his readers as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, to do as he writes, to live godly lives. And the verses just prior to our text speak of who God's people are. Therefore, this call to a holy living and an abstinence and honorable living is not to be taken lightly both because of the calling, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and because of the reason for the calling, being God's beloved, chosen and precious in His sight, foreknown by the Father, bought by the Son, sanctified by the Spirit. Remember, Peter was writing to Christians who were suffering terribly under persecution, which is why this book, this letter, places such an emphasis on the Father's work, on the glory that awaits 
God's people, and therefore the joy that they already have. It's only after this that Peter urges them as God's priests, as people who have received his mercy, to act accordingly. And if this is the power, if this is the weight behind Peter's exhortation, what's he calling us to do? And he starts with ourselves or that which dwells deep within each of us. For the world is allied with our old nature, with the flesh, and together with Satan who works to overthrow us. And Peter's readers, just like us today, waged constant warfare against their own sinful desires. Sinful desires including all sorts of things. It's, it's terrible how dark our hearts can truly be. Pornography late at night. Petty theft at the corner store. Crude language in the workplace. Chatting over coffee or texting your friends about another particular person. Fudging the numbers during a tax season. Just as the exhortation holds a lot of clout, so does this grim reminder of our circumstances. Abstain from sinful passion. It's a brutal task we're called to do. To deny ourselves goes contrary to everything that society tells us. Enjoy yourself for a change. And do what you want to do. Live life to the fullest. Perhaps you might even wonder at times when the temptation is great why it is that we have to restrain ourselves so much. If Christ has already paid for it all, why do I have to suffer against my inner self? Isn't it enough that he's already done so, that he's suffered? What harm is a little bit of fun every now and then anyway? And it's true that Christ has paid for it all with his blood, that we cannot add to that, nor can we take away from it. But we don't fight in order to be saved. We fight because we are saved. We're not to succumb to our sinful desires because we are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood. And the priests of the temple, they were called to be clean, and they had many acts to perform to be clean. Christ has fulfilled all of those the ceremonial rites of the Old Testament. And he makes us clean, but he still calls us to be godly, to lead godly lives. For our souls are not our own. They belong to him. We must fight to protect them. So for your own sake, do not allow these desires to overrule you. Our hearts may be dark at times. And it's tempting to hide in its shadows. God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We don't belong in the shadow anymore. So abstain from going there. We're called to live in this world, in the flesh as sojourners, as people who don't belong here. For our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. We're to have nothing to do with these sinful desires. They're from a completely different kingdom, and dwelling with them is to court the enemy. This can only be done having been born again through his word. This is where we might share a Mennonite policy of radical, complete shunning and avoidance. 
doing utterly away with such things, placing safeguards against temptations, protecting ourselves against pornography, both software guards like covenant eyes and brotherly, sisterly guards like mentors, accountability partners, or watching every word that leaves the mouth, avoiding environments and media that encourages crude talk or inappropriate jokes, reminding ourselves constantly that the brothers, the sisters that we speak rashly about have been chosen by Almighty God, by an eternal Father to be His own beloved children, catching back gossip, even from the tip of the tongue, being honest with the government and accountants on where, how exactly money is spent or acquired, recalling the everlasting patience God has in withholding His pure and righteous wrath against the filthy wickedness of the world for the sake of His children, and curbing your own anger the next time the toys are left out, or the car returned home with an empty tank, worse yet, a scrape. Practical things calling us to live godly lives, abstaining from passion, anger, frustration, hatred, malice, envy, deceit. The list goes on. In all things, we're called, encouraged, exhorted even to curb our sinful desires and to replace them with godly desires, bearing the fruit of the Spirit This is the essence of godly living, of honorable living, and it only results in other people noticing. Peter encourages his brothers and sisters to live among the Gentiles honorably, even among accusations from other people that were wrong, that were lies. Just as the early Christians waged war against their sinful desires, so too they suffered against, uh, from their secular neighbors. And in those days at that time, the Christians, they were suffering terribly. They would continue to suffer, particularly under the Roman emperors, Nero and Domitian, later again under Trajan. The Jews in particular found the Christians intolerable, caused enough strife that even a venerable emperor like Claudius expelled them. And in expelling the Jews, probably included some Christian Jews or Jewish Christians, perhaps even Paul's co-worker Priscilla from Rome. And despite suffering from false allegations and dirty rumors tainting their honor, Peter reminds the Christians to ignore it and to live lives that would ultimately prove their accusers wrong. At the beginning of the chapter, he tells them to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These were not characteristics of the believer, but of the unbeliever. And he writes in verse 8 and 9 that they stumble because they disobey the word. That Christians are a holy nation. 
And that while we do not share their citizenship with the world, we still dwell among them as exiles, as foreigners, as pilgrims in their land. And being God's chosen people for proclaiming His excellencies, we are to live among the Gentiles, regardless of what they think of us. This is our calling as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Through our spiritual war against our sinful desires, we will win our neighbors by our actions that come out of that inner fight. And that's why Peter's exhortation begins with absence and carries on into honorable living. The one comes out of the other. That's why the catechism reminds us that our good deeds, they're not only assurance of our own salvation, but it's also a method for the Spirit to work in the hearts of unbelievers. Even being wicked in their accusations and unfair trials, the people among whom we live will still notice good conduct if we truly fight back against our sinful desires. They will notice that the followers of Christ do not share the same practices that the children of God do not get drunk or swear. That the families of believers are blessed by God with peace and friendship. And how brothers and sisters within the church take care of each other, even in times of great stress. And while the society we live among today does not radically persecute us like the Roman society did to the early Christian church, we do still have struggles with modern society. Do not allow them to have any merit for any sort of accusations against Christianity. Let them see the fruit of the Spirit, for as Paul says, against such there is no law. Our interaction, our reputation among unbelievers is to be of love, of grace, and kindness, even when we ourselves are misrepresented. Like pro-life people are misrepresented, attacked for being anti-woman, only wanting to control women, not caring about them beyond what they do in private. But despite the reputation spread by those who speak against us as evildoers, we are to be known for the care, for the support, the love we can offer women, including those who do not fall into perfect little marriages with perfect little families. Christmas is only a few weeks away. And this festive season carries a distinctly different air. The general public is distinctly concerned about the availability of hospital beds as a number of cases continues to rise and hospitalizations with them. People are worried about what sort of plans they might make for the holidays, whether or not schools will continue into the new year, whether or not a, an, an effective vaccine might be available, whether or not they or a loved one might contract this disease. Stress levels across our communities are rising. What sort of tangible things are we, as the people of God, doing for good deeds in Smithville? How are Christians helping this community through this holiday season? 
Christ Jesus has brought us out of darkness. He's given to us life so that we might live in his light and glorify him. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, they may reflect the beautiful reality that we are his beloved, that we have life in him, that we are the children of God. Therefore, quash anything in your life that might cause dishonor to your heavenly Father. Walk as his royal child, as a priestly prince or a priestly princess, sacrificing every aspect of your life as a royal representative of the house of God here in the kingdom of the world. That's not a one-time thing. The observation that Peter writes of that when they see your good deeds, that observation unbelievers see, it's a long term. It's reflective observation that ends in them thinking about it. Thinking about that Christian that they talked to, that they saw, that they interacted with on multiple occasions. And that Christian who, despite everything the unbeliever thought he knew about Christians, how Christians are spiteful, envious, judgmental hypocrites holding society back. And this Christian was actually the opposite. And that the community, that this Christian that he witnessed is part of a Christian community that is warm and welcoming. One that helps and supports one another. When unbelievers see this, when they notice this, when they come to their own faith on account of it, that's a day of visitation. We know that all men will know the majesty of God when Jesus Christ, our Lord, returns on the clouds of heaven in all of his splendor, all of his glory, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow before him. That will be a final day of visitation. When it occurs, there will not be any more chance for repentance. But God knows his people. The Spirit works tirelessly to gather those whom Christ has paid for. To live your lives out so that he may visit the unbelievers on a day before that final day. So that they may come to faith and give glory to God, thanking him for the faith that he works in them. With the seed of faith that grew from seeing your own faithful deeds. And living out your lives honorably in today's society, God receives his glory. In Christ, we, the redeemed, may have our good deeds ultimately glorify God, which is our purpose in this life. All of this is for God's glory, His alone. He's called us, having foreknown and elected those who were precious to Him, and who may receive mercy from him. Your own struggles, your own actions will bring glory to him. He's paid for your soul with his blood. He gives you strength to be victorious in a battle against sinful desire. And in that strength that he gives, his name is honored and glorified. Now, the final matter of the Gentiles that will bring glory to him 
Either they will come to faith on the day he visits them in grace, or they will bend the knee at the glorious day of the Son of God visiting the world again. In either case, the day of visitation will come and they will glorify God. There's no doubt in our minds as to the final result of the work of God on this earth. He has one path to that final day and no amount of persecution or suffering or slander will change that one bit. He will have his chosen, a people for his own possession. God realizes his glory in this plan of redemption. He actively restrains his wrath against this world so that Christ Jesus can continue and complete his work of gathering, defending, preserving his church for everlasting life. The day that he has appointed for Jesus to return, it will come when that work is complete. Every time the gospel goes out, Every time the Spirit works faith, every time a person dead in their trespasses is given life, we draw closer to that day, nearer, and still nearer that day comes. And on that final day, Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven. He will judge the living and the dead. And everyone, believers, unbelievers, angels, devils, they will look They will see this great and glorious king and they will know that his authority is unmatched. There will be no more delusions. There will be no more doubting. There will be absolute certainty in everyone that this Jesus is Lord. Everyone will be forced to bow in submission, willing or not. That day will bring a new life to all of his people. His beloved people will receive new life and physical bodies transformed to be like his gloriously resurrected body. And everyone who has hardened themselves in rebellion will be compelled to acknowledge that there is only life in trusting and obeying the Lord God who created life and only death and suffering outside of him. They will be compelled to admit that in their hearts they knew that there was a God as the heavens declared, as the handiwork of God had testified. Many will need to acknowledge that his love was on display through his saints, through their deeds, through their daily walk. People who were just as lost and dead as they were, living in the shadows, yet called out of it, renewed, given new life, able to live a reflection of Christ's light during their sojourn on earth. All to the glory of God. But before that day does come, Jesus continues to gather his people. His spirit continues to work faith in people's hearts. And he delights in using weak and sinful people like you and me in bringing that about. He sees glory in how people who were previously blind and lost start leading other blind and lost sinners to the gospel after they've found their way, after he has opened their eyes, given them light and direction through his word. 
There is glory and delight for God and how sinners come to faith because they were receptive to the gospel after witnessing it at work in Christians. And God visits them and gives them new life as they turn to Him for support, trusting in Christ Jesus for complete forgiveness. And this is our calling in the middle of this short life. In this world of sin and suffering, there's no guarantee of prosperity. There's no guarantee even of safety. There is, however, the beautiful reality that Christ is King. That while we are sojourners here with our citizenship in heaven, we may yet glorify God today. We may display His love and grace for us in how we demonstrate that love and grace to unbelievers even when they are not graceful to us. For they are not graceful to followers of Christ. Those who live in the darkness rebel against the light. Peter knows this to be true. He even acknowledges it in this exhortation to live honorably. They will speak out. They will push down. There will be evil spoken of you. But it's not our response to lash back. It's not our response to retaliate. Peter will indeed immediately hereafter give the exhortation to be subject to every human institution. And why? For the Lord's sake. And the conduct of others does not impact our own conduct. That conduct, if done in grace and peace, that will honor and glorify God both today and forever. For God is sovereign. He has set His Son as King. He has absolute authority, even despite what the nations might say. So Peter is not calling the persecuted Christian to self-reflection, to self-help, to self-improvement. It's not a call to lead moral lives as good citizens. This is a call to give glory to Him who is King, to whose nation we belong. We're heavenly citizens with a heavenly obligation. We are ambassadors to the Gentiles living in their nations as exiles for a time, called to represent Christ, our King. And our good deeds have a direct impact on how unbelievers view God. If it is not clear that His love for us has a profound impact upon our lives, then they will not desire it for themselves either. Therefore, remember, brothers and sisters, we are to be completely apart from our sinful desires. The citizens of the world live as honorable as temporary foreign workers. If they speak out against you, remember that they have to know you in order to speak against you. Therefore, be a part of society so that your neighbors can know you. They can see daily the way that you live. Walk a Christian walk of life as imitators of Christ so that they can see your good deeds and glorify God. For beloved in all things, it's for His plan under His name, to His glory that we live. This is true both for us 
and ultimately also for unbelievers. But the day of his final visitation draws ever nearer all men. Let's sing in response Psalm 2. We'll sing stanzas 2, 3, and 4.